A few years ago, I was in Shanghai, and I was asked to speak to a business school and China's CEO forum, about 300 Marxist CEOs. Fascinating day. And at the end of it, I walked back from the final banquet with the dean of the business school, and he said to me, let me ask you a question I wouldn't ask in public. He said, we in China are fascinated with the Christian roots of the Western past for the sake of China's future. But you in the West are cutting off your roots. What am I missing? I had to say to him with sadness, he wasn't missing anything. That's one of the features of our world, that the Western world is cutting off deliberately and systematically its Jewish and Christian roots. We are today a cut flower civilization. And just as a beautiful bunch of flowers in a vase that is not perennials, eventually will die. And there's no question that our civilization, if it continues to sever its roots, will die in terms of the greatness of the last few hundred years. Now, we don't know how things are going to go. Whether there could be an extraordinary return to the Lord, that's thoroughly possible. Or whether we'll move into a very different world, that too is thoroughly possible. But I want to raise the question this morning, how will we as the people of God behave if we move into a world that is no longer the world as we've known it. You can even see today at the beginning of it, some people out of fear just shrinking into a more private faith. Other people out of frustration at much of the church just giving up altogether and leaving the faith. What will it take for the people of God to be faithful Whatever happens, we've certainly got precedents. You think of the time of Augustine that I mentioned several times, who lived at the end of 800 years of Roman dominance. And yet, he was at the beginning of what we now know as the Dark Ages. Or we have here in Scripture this wonderful story of Daniel and his three friends, who find themselves in a world very different from the world that they've known to that point. Clearly, as we can see from Daniel overall, to survive and prevail, the people of God have got to have insight into the nature of the times. And again and again, Daniel's described as a man of insight, and at the end it talks of those who have insight generally but insight married to integrity. People who know how to stand faithful to the Lord, whatever. Now, the book of Daniel's fascinating book, between two prophets, it has history, and it has prophecy, but it's not like the books around it. It also includes what's called unveiling, or the Greek word, the apocalyptic. And of course, it includes what we call of as the end times, the Greek word, 
eschatology. And Daniel has history, Daniel has prophecy, and Daniel has this extraordinary element of the apocalyptic and the eschatological. But I want you to think today, if, and I'm only saying if, we find ourselves in the years ahead in a world that's very different from the world we've known, where Western dominance has gone, the Christian consensus in this country is a memory, how will the people of God stand then? And just think of three things that we can see in this passage that will be clues to us and a help to us as we consider such a world which may well be the world for our children. First of all, think of what it meant for them to be in their alien circumstances. Daniel was deported in 605 B.C. I said in the first sermon of the series that the first of the great years of calamity for the Jews was 586. This is before that. This was a smaller deportation. But clearly, within a few years of Daniel arriving in Babylon, Jerusalem was smashed to smithereens and destroyed in terms of everything they've known. The world as they knew it, had gone. He was in a different place. Not Jerusalem. Babylon at first, and then Susa. He had an entirely different perspective. He couldn't be taught the Torah as he was at home, as the sole authority in the land. He was under the Babylonians with all their teaching, and especially their great and famous astrology. And clearly he has very different principles and procedures. It's no longer, for example, the prophets, thus says the Lord with a clear-cut authority. He has visions and dreams and symbols and all sorts of ways the Lord speaks to him. It's a very different world. The world as he'd known it had gone. Now, many of the Jews must have been tempted to look back with just profound sorrow and look around with dismay and look ahead with fear and maybe resignation. You can see it in Psalm 137. Those who were sitting down by the rivers of Babylon and just weeping. How could they sing the Lord's song in a foreign country? But that wasn't the way for, Babylon, uh, for Daniel and his three friends. They were introduced to power. And they had responsibility. And there's no nostalgia. There's no looking back. There's no glum melancholy. They engage with the world that God has introduced them to, different radically, though it is in almost every single way. I was looking the other day at the commercial for NBC's New Normal which, of course, is one of the ways you can see through the media. In other ways, they're smashing down the old normal, the old traditions, and so on. We've lived for a generation now in what's called the culture of transgression that wants to press the boundaries and flout the conventions and run us to the edge and so on and so on. So, in many ways, violence and even evil have become cool through our media. And we can surely soon be in a world where the new normal is the old perversion and the old abomination. Who knows the world that we're into? But there's no question that we're in a different world, and certainly so were they.
The second thing you can see from this story is their adamant convictions. Clearly, they're laid down and they become a habit of the heart long before this great test came. Now, what they do in standing firm is really quite remarkable, if you think of it. They're in a completely different world. But they live in the same old way of faithfulness. Now, think what was against them. On the one hand, they had this radical initiation into a new way. In terms of their selection, these young men, they were excellent. And they're described as good-looking and intelligent and all sorts of other qualities. In terms of their studies, it was extensive, as John Lennox often says. They had three years in King's College, Babylon. And in terms of their service at the end, they were elite. They come out and they serve the emperor himself. But that's not all. The radical initiation includes a deliberately revised identity. I was saying on Monday night that the American founders knew they had to win freedom and then order freedom and sustain freedom. Well, if you think of empires, the equivalent of winning freedom for an empire is expansion and slowly they grow over the whole earth that they have power over. But the equivalent of ordering freedom for an empire is inclusion. They take people, and as Winston Churchill says, they digest them. They don't just digest their lands territorially. They digest their cultures and shape them in their own home culture. And here you see, they even digest their identities. And Daniel and his three friends have their Hebrews' names removed, and they're given these Babylonian names, which are all tied in to Babylonian gods. But despite all that, they still have unshakable, resolute integrity. Now, how on earth could they stand when so many didn't? And huge parts of Judaism didn't, such as the Samaritans. You can see that those who stood went back to their understanding of God. He who is. I am who I am. Or as the great prophet who precedes Daniel, Isaiah had said, I am the Lord, there is no other. This is what underlies the greatness of the Jewish people. There is one God. There is no God but God. And so they will worship and follow one Lord only. And clearly that profound sense of loyalty to one God is the adamantine conviction that lies behind the stand that they have to make. Do we have that today? Let's be blunt. We don't church-wide. I would never have believed the polls that show that more than 51% of young evangelicals no longer believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Our early Christian brothers and sisters would have died rather than deny that. 
Our Chinese brothers and Iranian brothers are dying today rather than deny that. But in the day of this grand pluralization of America, young American evangelicals casually, Jesus is a way among many, and so on. I read an interview this week in terms of the homosexuality, and the evangelical brother was saying, it came down to the Bible against my friends. And then he went on to say, my friends one, my friends will always win against the Bible in a case like that. You can see in this country, the rot has already gone pretty deep in places, but not here. They've been shaped by their loyalty to the God beside whom there was no other. Now, we see all that, of course, flowing into chapter 3 of Daniel. And what we see here is their audacious confidence before the king. You remember the build-up of the story. Nebuchadnezzar had this extraordinary dream, and he was told that he was the golden image. And maybe that very dream had gone to his head, and here he sets up this huge golden image. Ninety feet high. Some people have said that's impossible. Well, actually, the Colossus of Rhodes was 70 cubits high, not 60 cubits high, even higher than this. We don't know whether it was a solid gold or whether, as Isaiah describes the making of idols, it's a gold-plated image. But whatever it is, we're not even told whether it's the image of God or the image of Nebuchadnezzar. But either way, the people are called to bow down to the image, whether it's allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar or worship to their God, we're not quite told. Clearly, it's to boost the power of the regime and its ruler and to provide a binding unity to the empire. There isn't that much described in terms of the detail of the image. But what matters is, it's an affront to the Jews. Now, the sanctions are described, too. Babylon, of course, is not like Rome or Greece, where there was lots of stone and marble. There was none. So all the great monuments and buildings in Babylon were brick. And brick furnaces were so crucial. And the fiery furnace is probably rather like a 19th century railway tunnel with one end blocked off and the hole in the top through which all the wood or the charcoal was put. And we can read in Babylonian literature that a thousand years before this, they would use this as a sanction, drop slaves or recalcitrant rebels down through the hole in their blazing furnaces. And we can see in Jeremiah, that the false prophets from Israel were actually made to suffer this fate. So it was a very real and drastic punishment. The odd thing here is there's no mention of Daniel. It probably would be unthinkable if he was there that he wouldn't stand too. But maybe for some reason he was away on some mission, but the, his three friends do stand. The emperor wouldn't have known if there hadn't been an informer. 
And the word used here of bringing a charge against them is an exceedingly strong, almost crude word. It's as if the original Babylonian is to tear the flesh off someone and eat someone's flesh. And that's the word used of slander or malicious accusation. But the emperor gives them a chance. Is it true? And are you ready? And of course, they are. And back comes this immortal reply. We have no need to think about it. Clearly, their position was a habit of their hearts. Clearly, the cost had been counted. The convictions had been laid down long before. We have no need to think about it. God is able to deliver us. Whether he will or not, we don't know. He has the power, but we don't presume on that power. But whether he will or he won't, we will not bow to your images. No way. Either way. Winston Churchill often used to quote Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great used to say, the reason the Persians were always slaves, they didn't know how to use the word no. Clearly, these people did. In the 11th century, before the great St. Francis of Assisi, there was another reformer before the Reformation called Peter Damien. And he was a man who refused to be swayed and refused to be torn off course in his faithfulness to our Lord in a very corrupt time in the church. And he was given the nickname, The Impossible Man. He was unmanipulable. He was unbribable. In George Orwell's later term, he was unclubbable. No society or group that he joined could press them into his mold. And Peter Damien stood firm when much of the church suffered incredible corruption. And that's surely what we see here. But of course, that flows out of their convictions. Because again, going back to Exodus, no other gods beside me. And when you go into other lands, you will not worship their gods and you will not follow their practices. And those who are faithful to the Lord remembered that and always stood firm. Will we? Will we and our children? The last thing I'd point out is the awe-inspiring certainties that become apparent as all these stories, this one and many others from Daniel, go on. Every Sunday school kid knows the outcome. The furnace superheated. Even the escorting captors burned alive. But as they thrown into the blaze, all that they lose in the fire is the bonds and the cords that tie them. And they walk free. And the emperor, to his startled amazement, sees not just three men, but a fourth man. And he calls them out of the furnace and recognizes the Most High God. And having said, what God can save you from my hand? 
he recognizes that one God could, the true God. Now, as you look at the book of Daniel, you see that the power of the story comes from the extra added dimension. Here in this famous incident, you have three men in the fire, but the fourth man makes the difference. Or in the previous chapter and elsewhere, you have four mighty kingdoms, but they all collapse in their turn. And it's the fifth kingdom, cut without any hands, that comes from heaven, which is the only one that lasts and is indestructible. And actually, if you read Daniel carefully, there's a sense of doubleness throughout the book. You have, of course, two cities. Two capitals, Babylon and Susa. You have two empires, the Babylonian and the Persian. There are lots of things that are relatively obvious. It's the only book in the Old Testament that's actually written in two languages, Hebrew and Babylonian. But that isn't the doubleness that really matters as the book goes on. Clearly, you have human sovereignties, and then you have God's sovereignty. Clearly, you have a natural perspective on the whole of life. And then you have a supernatural perspective as life is seen under God. And the question is, which one is finally real? Who has the last say? And so on. Actually, you see the doubleness from the very beginning in the opening verses of the book. Jerusalem is destroyed. But it doesn't give you the suggestion the little power is eaten up by a big power. An old power by rising new power. You could put it that way in Marxist terms or Darwinian terms or Hegelian terms, but that isn't how Daniel opens. It is the Lord who gives Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar from the word go. And Jerusalem only goes under because they had disobeyed the Lord, and what happened to them was judgment. So what are the certainties we see as we see through the whole book, including this great chapter? The first certainty, and we need to feed on these things ourselves today. First, all power is God's. Now let's not say these things as cliches or truisms. But ponder them and feed on them and count on them. All power is God's. Secondly, all human power is derived, is limited, is unstable, and is always transient. The Lord says to Nebuchadnezzar, after you, and then another, and then another, with all human power, and this too will be true of America, as it was true of Britain and France and Spain and Rome and Greece and who knows what. There will be an after America. All human power is derived, limited, unstable, and transient. And if we cut the roots, we cannot expect to survive like a flower that is still growing and powerful. And the third great certainty, only one kingdom is everlasting 
and indestructible. And that is the Lord's kingdom. And we who are part of that kingdom have to be loyal to that kingdom through all the other powers that are around. So what will this mean to us? Pray God, we see a return. And the roots of our culture are not cut, as many are openly seeking to cut it today. But I would say to you with a deep gravity, Nebuchadnezzar said to the three of them, If you are ready, and they were, are we? Are we? Clearly much of the church is not. When you see, for example, so many young Christians defecting from the faith, the church is sick, they say, and they're right, it is sick in many points. But rather than go back to Jesus and see the church reformed, they leave the faith altogether. Are we ready? Let me just make five simple, quick things for you to ponder sometime in the next few days. First, the world as we've known it may soon be gone. Secondly, the new normal may well be the old perversion writ large. Thirdly, just as in the book of Daniel itself, where in the early days they're rescued, and by the end of the book, there's an unprecedented distress for the people of God, the sanctions against us may mount. Fourthly, the time to lay down the habits of the heart is now. And lastly, should such a day ever come as it came to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by God's grace, I hope, we too will say, no way, either way. Never give in. Never, 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 never. The test may come in our families. The test may come in our neighborhoods. The test may come for some at school and at college. The test may come at work. The test could well come in public life. But let's prepare ourselves today. Count the cost. Build in the convictions. So that if that day ever comes, by God's grace, we may stand firm and honor his name and say to whatever powers are against him and against us, no way, either way. It is him we love and serve. And we will never give in. Never, 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 never.